Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Adrienne Marie Brown. She's the author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, and Shaping Worlds, and the co-editor of Octavius Brood, Science Fiction (laughs) from Social Justice Movements. She's also the co-host of How to Survive the End of the World and Octavius Parables podcast. And she is rooted in Detroit. I love saying rooted because words like that are going to come up a lot in this conversation. I am very, very, very happy to have you on the deep dive with me. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. You know, people who listen to the show always know that I always give these little preambles, but in the interest of time, I don't actually want to do that. And what I want to do is really jump into a conversation that despite the fact that I have a lot of notes and I've read all your stuff and I've been reading other stuff in preparation to talk about your stuff, even with all of that preparation, because your perspective embraces complexity so fully, I feel like I could dive in at any particular place and we're still going to end up swimming around. And I think that's a, a testament to your thought process and the way you work. So I'll really... I guess, start at what I'm perceiving as my beginning, okay. Great. <laughs> which is that when I started reading your work, what really struck me was that there's this tone of both what I'm perceiving as invitation mm-hmm. and an invite to gather around ideas. And so I want to start there and maybe the show will take on some of that same energy. And it seems to me that that's very intentional. So I want to invite you to kind of discuss that. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for the scholarship and preparation and engaging the work. You know, I don't take it for granted ever that people are joining me and looking at the world through the lens of pleasure or through the lens of emergence or through the lens of visionary fiction, because I still, to me, those lenses are still relatively new. And I'm excited when I meet other people who are like, okay, I'll take a look, I'll look. And It's definitely intentional for me that my work is invitation-based. It's, for me, a way of being anti-capitalist in how I share my ideas. So I'm not trying to pitch the ideas. I'm not trying to sell the ideas. I very rarely do any promotion of the products, you know, the things that I work on. Because for me, I think that each person is actually pulled forward towards their destiny and their purpose by their curiosity. And I feel like if I can make an appealing plate, you know, like I'm like, this is everything I know about this. And I want to make it as easy as possible for people to sort of check it out. But I'm not interested in anyone, you know, diving into the ideas if they're not interested in being there. I don't want obligatory participation. I don't want it to just be like, well, this is trending. So now we're all paying attention to this. Thank you. Sorry, food just arrived. Yay. <laughs> oh, it's all good. This is a um, spirit of creation. So do what you got to do. Yeah. Other voices, the one who said thank you, thank you for yeah. bringing the food. It's, it's all the good. the sweetest thing. I'm just like, I am in a situation where I get so much care. and But it's all because I'm like, I believe in having these kind of conversations, like showing up for conversations. As much as possible, I want to just be there as my whole self. And 
I think that what can get built between two people or three people or a group of people is always more valuable ultimately than what can happen if I just go purely by myself and try to think the world, imagine the world, dream the whole thing up. I often quote my friend Terry Marshall from Intelligent Mischief, who taught me that we are all living inside of other people's imaginations of how the world would work and that those imaginations were competitive. You know, they were like, I'm putting out an idea and I'm trying to dominate everyone with my vision, supremacy of white people, supremacy of men, supremacy. And so to me, building ideas through conversations that happen at an intimate level, where it's at relational level, it means that you're taking a grasp of the ideas, but you're shaping them together as a community for more people. And when more people imagine a future together, more people will be able to live and have a viable existence in that future. They're not forgotten after effects. So it's intentional. I'm also not trying to create something where everyone has to practice the same way to participate in the ideas. I very much like to show like, here it is, it's partially baked, or, you know, I got a good batch here. But then I love the idea of people taking the books or quotes or articles or whatever, you know, the podcast, and then sitting themselves with people that they care about and love and are actually in relationship with and contending with the ideas in together in that way. I'm like, I don't need to be in the conversation with every person who engages these ideas because we're not going to be building our future all together as three gazillion people. It's like, how do we find the little pockets of folks who are like, how do we emerge together? How do we face apocalypse together? Like, where did we want to bury our resources? <laughs> what, how tangible can we get about facing this time? And I love how these ideas, they do two things. One, they feel when you hear them and when people connect with the work and spend time with the work, as I have and many others have, you'll see that there are many, many citations. There's many, many quotes and articles and things that you add in to show that this is kind of a well of information, right? There's a wellspring of information that's coming from a lot of different sources and we can kind of pull what's needed and what feels right. So I say all that to say that a lot of it feels very natural in that respect. Like it it feels like it's something that we respond to very much. But yet I also know that in the way in which we most typically organize and have organized, it's not that easy to actually do in practice. And so I wonder if you can share a little bit of if you've seen or experienced that same sort of dichotomy, that there's a a naturalness to the ideas, but yet these systems, whether it's a capitalist system or the ways in which we're used to think about leadership, make it difficult. Oh, not impossible. (laughs) Not impossible. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like it always befuddles me when people come up with ideas or name an idea and are like, I just created this. And I'm like, wow, all of the millions of years of our existence and just out of the blue, you just created something. It's not how I think of creation. So when I think of creation, when I think of how I've come to understand the world, what I bring to it is the unique blend of my life story, my life experiences, my particular, you know, having a multiracial experience, having a father in the army. So we were moving all the time and we were inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. That meant I was highly adaptable. And so when the ideas about adaptability came across my desk, it was like, oh, hey, I know something about that because I've spent my life like every two years 
landing and finding a way to belong. So having two sisters, you know, there's just like all these different things that if I weave it all together, my life experience doesn't mean that I come up with the new ideas. It means that the ideas are filtered through the prism of my life in a particular way. And if that's true for me, I love the idea that it's also true for everyone, that we're all constantly coming across these ideas and then filtering them through the prisms of our own lives. And then they become different, not fully different ideas, but they become different because they are tinged with the particular light of the grief that we experience, the love that we experience, those different things. And if I look back, you know, I know some of my own lineage, but most of it, I actually don't know. A very Black American, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. there's a limit to what we get to understand for real of how our ancestors moved through the different phases of their own lives and survival. So I've done a lot of selecting my ancestors, selecting ancestors and sort of inviting them to be a part of my lineage. And I feel like that, like with Audre Lorde, with Octavia Butler, with Harriet Tubman, there's certain people that I'm like, well, maybe not you particularly, because who knows what happens after they're gone. But I love the idea of drawing upon the wisdom of your life, drawing upon the strength of your life. And I'm a writer, so I'm really drawn to the words that those people shared. And, you know, when I think about Audre Lorde teaching us about, you know, once you've experienced your erotic aliveness, it becomes impossible to settle for self-negation and suffering. I'm like, oh, you know, I want to make sure that those words get carried forward. How do I uplift them and bring them into my work? At the same time, we live in a capitalist world and that capitalism spills all the way through philanthropy and into the work of justice, social justice work. So for years, I was a facilitator, organizer, and my intention was very like, I'm behind the scenes, like I'm just helping the organizers do things. And I've had to really come into my own humility that I'm like, I'm not necessarily a behind the scenes person. So I can be weaving and connecting. I want to always be uplifting my sources, always showing that there's multiple people in my story. But I also, I can't shrink myself. That would not be the anti-capitalist move, right? And for a long mm -hmm. time, I thought it was. I was like, I just have to not let anyone see me, like not take any attention for the work that I'm doing. But that also didn't gel. And it's also not what life has continued to offer to me. Like every time I try to dip to the side of the attention that's coming, the attention still follows. So now what I'm trying to do is become a refracting device. Like if the attention comes at me, then my job is to refract that attention towards Octavia Butler or refract that attention towards Tony K. Bambara or towards people who are my living peers who are incredible, right? So how do I take some of the light and make sure that it's going to my brilliant sisters who are teaching me everything I know or my close friends or my family or to people who are peer thinkers in this moment. But maybe for whatever reason, life didn't organize itself so that they would be spotlight people. And I'm like, that doesn't mean they don't deserve a spotlight. That's just the way things work. You know, right now it's like I'm light skinned. I have a college education. I've traveled a lot. So there's ways that when I speak, it's very palatable across a wide range of people. That doesn't mean I'm more deserving of a spotlight than anyone else. It just means people can understand me. And part of my job then is being like, how can I help make sure that you also understand the original sources of whatever ideas that I'm, I'm receiving? For most of my life, you know, being a woman has not been like, a, oh, you're going to get a spotlight because you're the woman. 
or you're going to get a spotlight. Like, I'm like, I'm a fat woman. I wear glasses. I'm queer. I'm nerdy. And now in the past, like two years, it's like, oh, that's great. That's sexy. That's fine. That's whatever. (laughs) It's like, it wasn't that way for the longest time. So I'm also aware that the spotlight is a temporary state. The kind of attention that comes with, you know, the way capitalist celebrity works is a temporary state. And so for me, I work to not get too attached to it. But to just be like, okay, right now, if there's light coming my way, how do I get it where it needs to go? And it needs to go to the people, but it also fundamentally always, most important is it needs to go to the ideas, right? The ideas are the, that's the exciting part. And that's a radical notion of it in and of itself to understand the almost transient nature of attention. And, you know, attention shifts from one moment to another. I remember getting, you know, a dog-eared copy of, I believe it was Wild Seed from Octavia Butler, like, you know, and I'd never even heard of it, right? Because my interaction with fantasy at that time was what I call like traditional fantasy, you know, kind of the Lord of the Rings model, you know, group has to go accomplish something and do some sort of trial in order to do a thing. You know, because everything kind of followed that model. And when I got a copy of her work, which I don't even think was until I was in college, it changed everything. Also having me wonder how could it have happened that I didn't come across this prior to. And yet now we're seeing an incredible, I think it's unfair to call it a reemergence of a focus on her work, but her work is finding new relevance in the times in which we are in, which I find to be remarkable and so important. Yeah, I mean, she's on the New York Times bestseller list for the first time. It was something that she manifested. But I think it's also like now is when we need her work the most. She looked at this period and kind of unfolded all the possibilities inside of it. And she's like, here's a way to move forward, even though this period and what comes after it are not going to necessarily feel like fertile ground in which to grow anything. And inside of that, what seems like barren ground, she casts the seed or seed, she casts these ideas of having a destiny and the destiny, a positive obsession can actually make your life worth living and make the future still compelling. So to me, it's so thrilling. I love the idea that like, oh, you might create work and it's super necessary and useful, but you're ahead of your time. And I think she was very much like that, like her work, the more people who read it. And right now, you know, so many of us are like, let's lift this up. Like she really thought about these things in a very strategic way. She's a speculative writer, but she wrote very much like this is what's happening. And my role is to be prophetic, which means to call it what it is, to say exactly what's happening and what comes from that happening. And So my co-host on Octavia's Parables is Toshi Regan. And one of the things that she often says is she's like, she wasn't just magically coming up with these ideas and predicting stuff. She was looking at how humans are, how we behave under certain circumstances, how we respond to change, how comfortable we want to be, how othering we are of each other. And she said, here's what's coming, right? Is there will be a fundamental white Christian force that wants to dominate and control everyone's behavior, that's going to come and they will be able to move a president to office. That's definitely happening. And there will be people who are, you know, the haves will shrink, the have nots will grow. That's going to happen. And then climate change is coming. So there's going to be wildfires and 
everything she looked and understood, it was like, oh, you could look and understand that. In the 80s, you could look ahead to now and you could understand that. And what I find liberating about that is we can look ahead too. And we can understand not just our current conditions, which feel very overwhelming, and not just the next 10 years, but we can actually look ahead and see based on our human patterns, what is the direction of our communities, of our nation, of our species, of our different genders, of our different races, like we can start to make those same kind of predictions. And, you know, it's interesting in when you think about this idea of looking forward, this idea of, you know, mapping our potential on where we want to go. And, you know, if we just even use a lens of pop culture, which is a useful lens, people will, you know, I often say that, you know, there's this fascination with the dystopian, right, that we can, you know, whether it's a Children of Men or Walking Dead or any number of other types of um, medium that seem to emphasize something that is less favorable. And how do we begin to tell a story that acknowledges the challenges that we face while also not necessarily accepting that dystopia is the end result of all this? Mm -hmm. You know, I appreciate that. One of the things I've said before, and I feels relevant here is I think that dystopia and utopia always coexist. And in the same moment of history, in the same moment in time, there's someone experiencing utopia. And then there are other people who are living and surviving dystopian conditions in order to support that utopia. And there have been times when I think for some people, the U.S. seemed like a utopia. There are people right now with the pandemic and the uprisings and the uncertainty that gets um, fomented, the chaos that gets fomented by this administration. There are still people who they're making incredible amounts of money and living for them a utopian existence right now. And Octavia's work shows us that there's nothing in her work that's not always already happening right now. So that always feels important to me that I'm like, oh, I'm so scared about dystopia. What I really mean is I'm so scared to lose the comfort that I have, the touches of utopia that I currently have to go further into not having and knowing that there are so many people who are experiencing that. They are at the border right now, having forced hysterectomies and having their children pulled away from them. That's dystopia. It's happening in these borders. It's just, where are you relative to that? And for me, there's a short story called The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas or Omelas. Ursula K. Le Guin wrote this story. I'm a huge fan of this story because I think it encapsulates these moments of dystopia, utopia. It's basically, she wrote a short story of this incredible utopia where people are riding around naked, um, bareback on horses and just have the most beautiful life and everything's a carnival and festival. But to support their existence, a child has to be locked in a basement in total terror, darkness, squalor. And at a certain age, every single person in this utopia has to come and see the child so that they understand this is the cost of your existence. And I feel like I'm often trying to do that work is, can I be a part of shedding light on who's that child? that is making it possible for whatever existence is happening. And in my vision, I want to move into a situation where belonging is not determined by someone else's suffering and belonging is not determined by shared suffering and belonging is not determined by an enemy. All of those feel like very limited frameworks on which to build a future. And I think currently 
you know, to be black is to say, oh, we share suffering. We all have slave ancestors. We all face this oppression. And so we start to form community around our suffering. And it feels dangerous to me because at some point, hopefully that suffering ends. And then where are we? And how do we know we belong to each other? We also don't want to be belonging to each other only because someone else suffers in our name, even if it's vengeful suffering, even if it's like we're finally getting back at all the white people who did harmful things to us, you know, but I'm like that only, again, that's a temporary satiation, but it's not a foundation for a next world, a next society. And I think if we define belonging according to who is our enemy, then we will constantly be reifying that enemy, focusing on that enemy. We give all our attention to whoever the enemy is. And it's just a swinging pendulum back and forth. Who's in charge? Who's the dominant one? I'm interested in what happens beyond all that. You know, how do we actually be able to reclaim right relationship with planet and with each other as a species and with community such that our belonging is determined by our aliveness, by our pleasures, by the families we build, by the spiritual work that we can do to develop our lives. So, you know, that's not all in the parables. In the parables, we get inklings of that. I think if you broaden the view to Octavia's other world works, she spends more time moving into those destinies, moving off of earth in some cases. But to me, that's the thing is I'm like, well, how do you know you belong? How do you know you belong to aliveness, to life, yeah. to people, you know? And that's a real, again, I always feel like we know that this is the way it should be. Yes. And the getting there is the journey, right? Because when you were sharing your thoughts on that, I started thinking about how people will frame so much of like the American journey, because my family is West Indian, for example. So, you know, my parents came here from Barbados and Guyana, and then I came and all the rest, right? And boom, family. But nonetheless, what I mean by all of that is, is as someone who is, I think, fairly studied in American history, and the Black relationship to that history and the, the DNA of it, I think a lot of times we measure our, not success, I'm not going to capture it quite right, but there's a measurement on a scale of proximity to whiteness that is a reflection of maybe it's your power, it could be your privilege. I think a lot of immigrants measure kind of their proximity to whiteness in terms of closeness, which is on the flip how far away they are from blackness, you know, as they they navigate their time in the American hierarchy. And the other piece I'll try to tease out from that is it sounds like there is some trauma that we're all Mm. trying to navigate it in some respect. And because I I always laugh, you know, I think to myself, like, you know, and I'm kind of being a little facetious, but me and my friends will always say this, like, you know, black people talk about white people a lot. And I feel like (laughs) white people don't talk about black people ever, (laughs) you know, Uh unless it's a specific reason, (laughs) right? You know, like anyone that is suffering, anyone that is is struggling, it can just be off the radar. If you have privilege and you have what you need, you're not thinking about who doesn't, right? You actually, I think individualization is one of the main ways that you know that you have privilege that you have tapped into supremacy is you're just like, it's all about me, my healing, my shopping, my advancing, my drama, me, me, me. And when you're not plugged into that kind of supremacy, it becomes we, 
It's like, oh, how are we getting ahead? How is the whole family moving? You know, it's one of the things I often joke about. So you see a Black person succeed. It's often a very temporary state because we turn around and like redistribute everything. (laughs) And we don't think about necessarily what is the long-term investment of this? You know, it's really like now there's something. Let's share it, which is beautiful. And so I think about this a lot that I'm like, what is your attention on? Like, what is your attention on? And for Black people... I think our attention ends up on white people so much because it's like a video game of survival. And those are the blockades and that's who's shooting at us. And that's who's, you know, like literally it's like, that's the condition we're trying to survive all the time is black people are trying to survive white supremacy as a condition all the time. And so we talk about it and we talk about it in all these ways. I've been really noticing how black Twitter is such a brilliant space to be able to deconstruct through humor what we are dealing with, where it's like, there's almost no other weapon at our disposal that can work that well, because we don't have, literally, we are not the armed population of power. We also don't have numbers majority, numeric majorities. So it's only through banding together with other oppressed peoples that we start to build a majority of some sort, but we can still shape the culture so quickly and so brilliantly, you know, as we were having this conversation, last night was the vice presidential debate and a fly landed on the vice president's head. And you can't predict that kind of thing. You can't pray for that kind of thing. It's just like such a moment happens. And it's at the moment when he's talking about race and Breonna Taylor and just fumbling through yeah. what what would all only need to be an empathetic moment, right? To be able to actually feel, but he can't. And then something lands on his head that just shows there's nothing to penetrate. There's no, you know, there's no. (laughs) And then by this morning to go to look at Twitter, to black Twitter, to, you know, and just be like, look what we've done with this. Like this person has caused us egregious harm. And we are grieving people who are dead because of these decisions that this person made. And we can't fight back in all these different ways. But we do know that flies land on shit and flies land on the undead and flies land on like what is rotten. And we know how to turn that into a humor that will allow us to laugh at, in our grief and laugh through our pain and sort of take down through ridicule, take down someone who otherwise might seem untouchable. I love things like that. And I am very curious as I am starting to bring more of my attention to fiction writing, I'm really curious about how to bring that into the writing that I do so that it's less oriented around what is the core conflict and like who's fighting, but sort of what is the core pleasure? What is the core humor? How is pleasure and humor and belonging and love? How are those strategies by which these folks can overcome what seems like incomprehensible opposition and oppression? Because that's what we've done. The only reason you and I are here speaking today is because our ancestors laughed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they laughed and they survived somehow together. And it matters to me. It matters a lot. There's got to be. It's the reason why I talk about joy yes. rather than happiness. Happiness is this sort of commercial capitalist notion sold to brand and marketing and stuff. And joy is, you know, there's struggle in joy. Exactly. Right. It's not just a state of bliss. It can be blissful. Yeah. But it can also not be. And, 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 it can be and, very and you know, yeah, it can be overwhelming. It can be painful psychologically and physically, as evidenced by my yoga practice. I want to use that as a bridge 
to talk about these organizing principles because they are, you know, these are the things that are profound in our lives, right? It is love. It is pleasure. It is joy and any number of other deeply human ecological things that we feel. And I want to give you the space to discuss how those have become so much a part interwoven in your work, sometimes in title, like pleasure activism, and sometimes just in the strategy when you talk about the emergent strategy. And, you know, I'll leave it there, but I really want to spend some time talking about those concepts. You know, for me, so much of this is moving from just being thinking beings into the full data that's available as feeling beings. And I am a thinker. I'm like, give me, you know, I will wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning because there's thinking to do. And I will think everything through and loop to loop. And it's been one of the great blessings of, I'm in my 40s now, but of my 30s was coming in contact with somatics work, which was like, you're actually a whole system. And that whole system is designed to feel a ton of things, to feel emotion, to feel sensation, to feel mood, to feel memory, to feel ancestors, to feel family. Like, And I think it's one of the things that gets rubbed away with trauma is that it hurts to feel. And so we try to find ways to numb ourselves from feeling. We jump up into our heads. We try to logic our way through everything. We try to dismiss our feeling. And then sometimes we can get very oriented. Like I only want to feel the good things. So I'm just going to, I want to feel the highs and I don't want to experience the lows. And then I think before we know it, we become debilitated that we can't actually feel our full range. And so for me, pleasure, activism, emergent strategy, visionary fiction, all of it, that's the place where it all comes together is I want to be able to feel the full range of what it is to be a human being. I want to, you know, I deeply understand, for instance, that grief is gratitude. And that if I'm falling in love with someone, I'm going to be grieving that person at some point, or they'll be grieving me. And it might be we're grieving each other while we live. You know, we broke up, it didn't work out, whatever. We have that kind of grief and heartbreak. Or it might, you know, if things go well and we just love each other forever, then one of us will die and we will grieve in that way. And I have good friends in my life. And one of them is included in in pleasure activism is the story of Alana Devich Cyril, who was the partner of a friend of mine, got metastatic cancer diagnosis about one year into their soulmate marriage love story, and then died and has now been dead. We're coming up on two years of honoring this. And, you know, there's no way, there's no story in which my friend would say, no, I wish I hadn't experienced this love, right? Even though the grief is so overwhelming and so huge. And to me, I'm like, that's it right there is if you want to get all the beauty, the joy of being alive and in love and connected, you have to be willing to be in the grief, the terror. You know, I think that anyone who's a parent knows that, that like you made this perfect being and now you have to go through the terror of letting them go away from you. And over the course of their life, they'll go further and further for longer and longer. But that's the cost, you know, that's the cost of getting to deeply love and create. So I'm very into it. And I think that new futures become available to us when we're able to access our full range of emotion or a more full range of emotion. This pandemic has been hard for everyone. And I think those of us who are like, oh, but I'm, I can handle big feelings. I can handle it. I think it, we're having a different experience than those who are like, you know, I'm used to just 
getting numb and moving through my life and like being distracted by every party or whatever, you know, it's like, I have so many people who are like, I have just had to sit with myself for months. And I'm like, yes. And hopefully learn to feel like find new rituals for emotion. There's not a guidebook for what you do with 210,000 deaths. So each person is having to figure it out on their, on their own. But if we can, I think if we can fully feel that this is our actual condition, that will inform what comes next, right? For me, it's like, I have zero eggs that I want to put into the basket of this nation state somehow being different than this, right? To me, I'm like, I want to reduce the harm as much as I can of the American experiment while also fomenting other experiments, Mm -hmm. smaller experiments. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Like when I was growing up, the USSR existed and it was like, that's always been, you know, it just felt like forever. And then it wasn't, you know, it came apart. It was no longer federated. They no longer had to make decisions together, et cetera. I get very interested in things like that, where I'm like, are we able to see other possibilities for what the American experiment could do? You know, if there's people who they're much more concerned with a racialized hate based capitalism, and that's how they want to move forward. Do I have to stay tied to those people in order to continue my own experiment with life? I think my feeling self, my feeling self is very clearly like, no, I don't have to continue to build the deepest vulnerable relationships with those who hate me. I actually need to deepen in with those who can love me, who love me already or where love is a possibility for them and see what kind of society gets built rooted in love. And it's more interesting. It's more, I feel safer as my vision for the world in some ways gets smaller and more intimate. And I'm like, I'm in relationship with people I can actually see, touch and call. Mm -hmm. Like that's been the big lesson of this pandemic for me is I'm not quite as into the big amorphous world that I will change, right? I'm very much into like, how do I build small, deep, intimate community with people that care about me and what becomes possible from our care, building care-based societies at the small scale. And, you know, it's, I want to keep on the love point for a little bit. Stay on the love. But I, wanna, I do want to uh, plant a seed around what sounds like when we're thinking about how we're interacting with different societies, making choices. I had a conversation with the really great guy. If you, I've known him for a long time, but I did an episode with him a while back named Indy Johar. He's out of the UK. And we spent a lot of time talking about the difference between fragility and precarious. And, you know, the point was, then I kind of sat with that for a while and I kind of honed in on like fragile things are, can be powerful. They're strong, but they also require care, right? Uh Like whereas precarious is a different feeling because it's limiting in its scope of what Mm -hmm. we can achieve because we're kind of always on this knife's balance, so to speak, right? That if you go one way or this way, it's over, Uh you know? And so I'm thinking about those local relationships, like narrowing down the thought process, you know, are there ways to kind of build, because care is, can be something that's fragile, but yet powerful and strong because we have to nurture it, right? We have to give it attention. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I've been doing a lot of thinking about fragility versus vulnerability. 
Mm. and how vulnerability, like fragility, you know, the way I've been thinking about it is it's easily broken. It's something that's easily shattered, easily broken. And that I'm like, oh, I think some of the ways that society has been developing have been moving us towards fragility as a state of being. That's like, I am easy to break. I see so many people come into movements now, into movement spaces now, who feel highly fragile to me. And what I think we're on the path of is that vulnerability, right? That I can choose to actually reveal myself and I may break or I may be damaged. Something may change in me, but because it's of my own choosing, it's a breaking or it's a changing, it's a shattering, it's a rearranging that helps move me towards my liberation. And I want that kind of vulnerability and it's gross. Like it doesn't feel good at all to do, but I think we're all precarious, right? Like I think perhaps this has also been unveiled to more people in these past few months that I'm like, I've said for years, so many people think that they are stable when they're two paychecks away from being destitute and don't have a backup plan, don't have safety nets, don't have anything in place to make it through. And now we see that. We see people getting evicted. We see people who thought that they were good and they're like, oh, I was only as good as my job was. Um, And having lost that job or lost that stability, to me, acknowledging that precarity, that common precarity that we're all in helps us to then say, okay, now in that condition, I actually have to choose to be vulnerable and show who I am and show what I really need so that my community can care for me. And I'm interested in a care, a vulnerability-based care. I actually am like, I don't want fragile care, right? I don't want care that can be easily damaged. I want care that can be damaged and recover. I want resilient care. You know, I think a ton about resilience of like, we're going to harm each other. We're going to hurt each other's feelings. We're going to put our feet in our mouths. We're going to forget each other's birthdays. We're going to do things that are hard and need to be contended with. We're going to have conflict. And that might be the biggest piece that I'm leaning into as my next kind of obsession. It's like, how do we do conflict in a way that moves us towards abolition and towards liberation and towards uncaging each other and not trying to control each other? How do we do conflict in a way that's like, you're actually different from me. We have different opinions and I can respectfully have that with you. And neither of us is pushed into a state of unsafeness. And I think that's the distinction, like right now where we've gotten to in this country for a lot of reasons, right? A lot of disinformation, a lot of polarization, the way social media has played into this is very intentionally like creating chaos by making the differences seem insurmountable. But I also think there's something around that fundamental safety. And I think I see more Black people turning towards each other this way of like, we want to be safe. We want to be safe with each other and keep each other safe. And it might be time to divest from this experiment. You know, when I hear defund the police and defund and all this other stuff, like that's part of what I hear. It's like mm-hmm. we are divesting from the experiment of punitive justice. We are divesting from an American story that is built upon the assumption that policing is a good and safety inducing thing. We want to divest from those experiments. Well, once we divest, we have to invest in something else. And that's where I come alive. And I'm like, yeah, how would we handle someone causing harm in our community in a way that didn't dispose of them, dispose of ourselves, dispose of connection. And How build we similar it? systems, yeah. And ultimately build similar, because to me, if you push someone, you know, the somatic approach is like our fundamental needs are safety, belonging, and dignity. And so if you push someone, if someone causes harm and they get pushed out of the community, then that's just a different kind of prison to me. You've just pushed someone, you know, that belonging to community is so fundamental to us. And if you don't, 
There's no impetus then to correct your behavior, to break the cycles of violence and harm that you're engaged in. There's nothing that would say, yeah, go do that. And I don't think it's the work of like survivors to have to go be like, well, let me help you get your healing on. But I do think it is the work of community. What it means to be in community is being able to hear or see or witness someone on their worst day. And I love this, like Miriam Kaba is one of my teachers in the path of transformative justice. And I'm trying to learn like, how do I bring this to conflict resolution and mediation? But how do I hear how someone's doing on their worst day? How do I want to be treated on my worst day? And how do we build a society that allows for us to have these days and then to trace and uncover and be like, oh, that's because of this trauma that happened to me. That's because of this pain that I was sitting in. That's because I was overwhelmed by conditions. And I see this showing up more and more in pop culture too. You know, you mentioned that, but it's like, I flew the other day for the first time in months and Mm -hmm. there was this movie Waves that was on the airplane. Okay. And it was totally like a transformative justice tale in some ways or at least the first part of a transformative justice tale in that it really was humanizing someone who ends up doing a very violent thing. And it was like, here's all the different kinds of pressures, the missed moments of support, the control mechanisms of the father. There was all these things. I'm like, I'm really excited that there's more pop culture and art that are being created that say we are humans. We must humanize each other. I think Steven Universe does a great job of that too. It's just like, (laughs) you know, there's never a time when we're acting for no reason. There's always something that is compelling us. And if we can understand what that is, we can consider actually healing. There's a great opportunity whenever someone mentions Steven Universe, I'm always going to smile because that's a good shout out. It's so great. And this, you know, we kind of got to a point that I had toward the bottom of the first page, (laughs) (laughs) which is you have a quote and I wrote it down verbatim because I wanted to remember it where, because it talks about, it was a section where we were talking a little bit about social media dynamics, mm-hmm. resilience, and cancel culture. That's where my notes were, right? Oh, yeah. And you have a line where you say, and again, I think I wrote it pretty much verbatim, we call each other out until there's no one left beside us. And yes. it sounded like in this conversation around abolition and thinking more about what our communities look like, how do we resist that urge when, mm-hmm. like, and I'll say, Cancel culture to me has been completely weaponized by conservatives and those on the other side to quell debate. So I'm only using that term because it's the term. But I do want to make a distinguishment away from how I think we're going to talk about it. (laughs) Appreciate that. But how do we, you know, avoid that notion of calling each other out till there's no one left beside Mm -hmm. us? Because I see that often. You know, I won't say all the time because that's too definitive, but often. No, but it is happening more and more. And it's interesting. The next project that I have coming out this fall is a book called We Will Not Cancel Us because I feel positive obsession about this idea. And I think that there's something so satisfying about righteous wokeness, righteousness, right? And my friend Prentice Hemphill wrote this beautiful piece called Letting Go of Innocence. And it feels like that to me is at the heart of my sensibility around the cancel culture piece is I think it satisfies us to look at someone and see that they're much worse than us. However, we're defining that. Like I would never do what they've done. They're really bad. I'm much better. And me and my friends are much better. And I understand that satisfaction, especially when people are engaged in egregious harm. I think it doesn't account for 
is the iceberg scenario of it all. That like when we see these instances of harm, what we need to understand is that there's it's the tip of an iceberg and actually underneath the water, under the surface, that culture is everywhere. So when we see that someone has engaged in sexual assault or harm, it's so, I think, comforting to be able to say, we're canceling that person. They are bad. It's much harder to say, this is an indication of how rotten our entire society is when it comes to child sexual abuse, when it comes to rape culture, when it comes to white supremacy, when it comes to these harmful patterns. And that idea of letting go of innocence is like, how do I take in that I'm also shaped by this culture and that the problematic functions of it are inside of me? And if I'm going to relinquish it, I have to, it has to be from the inside out. That healing has to happen from the inside out for each person. I think what's difficult is when we call for that cancellation, so often I think what we want is I need a safer boundary. And again, this is my friend Prentice says, Boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and myself simultaneously. And I really sit with that. I'm like, how often are we really saying, I need a boundary from you? Like, I need to not see your face on my social media. I need to know that if I'm at the store, if we run into each other, that you know to not try to talk to me. I need to know, I'm trying all the time now to support people to identify what is the actual boundary that your system wants right now and needs right now. And how can we attend to that boundary being met and set in place and held by community rather than trying to disappear that other person? Because people don't go anywhere. You know, that's not, again, nature shows us this, that people don't disappear. Anything that you throw lands somewhere else Mm -hmm. and it decomposes or it becomes a part of the system or something else. And I think we do ourselves a great disservice when we say, well, I'm going to cancel you from here. And then that person just moves over to another location and continues their harmful behavior. I'm really interested in how we navigate this because I think it requires getting to a level of relationship where we're willing to be responsible for each other. And, you know, that's a lot of labor, especially if you think of it at scale. And this is one of the, I think when I really, like I've been an abolitionist I'd say theoretically kind of like, oh yeah, that sounds cool since college. And then I feel like as an organizer, I really landed it like, oh no, this is what I want. But I feel like it became tangible for me when I listened to Miriam Kava talk about transformative justice and how the goal is not to reach the same scale as the carceral system. The goal is not to just move one-to-one. Like instead of going to prison, you're going to do this process now or something like that. It's about landing at the level of relationship that we can scale transformative justice to whatever degree we're willing to be in real relationships with each other around both harm and the things that we love about each other and our capacity to transform. So in any community, when harm happens, what I hope for, what I pray for is that person who is in the survival role, they have a whole community who can circle around them and help them to heal and restore and recover and learn. And that the person who causes harm also has that. Some people to come around them and help them see themselves and be accountable and break the cycle of harm in them and want to break that cycle and believe it's possible and actually get to measure that happening in themselves. And it's a long haul work. It's not everyone's work. So, you know, we'll see what what happens with it. I do think we just don't have the numbers to be throwing each other away. Yeah. Right. (laughs) We just don't have the numbers. None of us are disposable. Mm -hmm. I'm keeping an eye on the time because I promised you a time frame. And 
I've left so much on the table, but I have two segments that I do usually do. I had, I'm going to sneak in one more before we get to the segments, (laughs) if I can, because I read, I kind of revisited Bell Hooks All About Love, anticipation of this conversation. And so, yeah, I have it like right here. (laughs) Um, This is my little stack of preparation. And she makes, the entire book is obviously about love. And I don't want you to be put in a position to talk about her thesis on love, but she did mention these sort of differences in how when she started researching the book and talking about, you know, men feel that they have love, women yearn for it, and the voices that usually opine about love um, were male, you know, as opposed to women's voices. Mm -hmm. But women are love practitioners, and these are her quotes. And given the ideas about how we're moving away and hopefully adjusting ourselves to different realities of who we are, what we are, our genders, and all of those things. I'm asking a very quick question. Um, I'm like, no, this is huge. (laughs) How does love fit into that idea of who feels it, who practices it, as it pertains to some of your other ideas Mm -hmm. around emergent strategies and pleasure activism? And then we'll get to the final two segments. So I'm stealing a little bit more of your time because I I didn't want to leave that on the table. (laughs) So... I just, I was trying to find because today this quote popped back up in on my feed that I posted like nine years ago. And so I'm seeing if I can bring it up now because it feels very tied into this. Yeah, here we go. So it's from T. Moore and it says, if you want to keep growing emotionally and spiritually for the rest of your life, accept this as your mantra and try to live as if it were true. Everything that I experience from another human being is either love or a call for love. Yeah. And I love that for me, when I wrote Emergent Strategy, I had to acknowledge, I had to admit that it might all be about a love story. It might all be about love. And when I say love, what I mean is right relationship. How do we get into relationships where I'm not trying to dominate or oppress or control or manage or fix you? How do I receive love that is not trying to fill all the holes in my heart, but just being present with me as I am? And loving someone and being present with them as they are. And, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh said that, like, I want to love the other person in such a way that they feel free. To me, that's the ultimate liberation is that we love each other, that we are in right relationship in such a way that we all get to feel free. That's the experiment that I'm most committed to. And that also means starting with yourself. And what I find is that because of the way patriarchy works, a lot of us have been socialized to think that we don't have a well of love within ourselves, that love is something that has to be poured into us from outside and that men will be the ones who pour that love into us. And we're just running around waiting for someone to pour it. And even though we have experience after experience of empty cups, busted cups, broken glasses, everything else, we still keep doing that. And so a lot of pleasure activism, if you read between the lines, I think a lot of it is like, here are tangible tools for falling back in love with yourself document yourself, write yourself love notes, do all this homework that allows you to return to what is it you long for and desire and need and who are you? How do you get positively obsessed with loving yourself? And then, you know, my dating advice that I often give people is you're not trying to impress anyone. How honest can you be? How much yourself can you actually be while that other person is being themselves? Then love becomes possible. And I think that is intimate relational work. And I also think that's how we build a society where everyone actually gets to belong 
That's awesome. I'm glad I snuck that one in on you. Yeah. So I'm going to get to the, off okay. the dome first and then the drop, but these are quick. So we're not going to be too, right. too much longer. So in emergent strategy, I think you did this also in pleasure activism, but you talked about, or you gave a list of your soundtrack that you were yeah. using as you were working on those books. Yes. So give me like one of your current soundtrack for this moment. What are you oh, listening to it. in this moment? There's a song called The Ascension off of an album of the same name by my friend Sufjan Stevens. It's one of those songs like, I'm like, go in a room, turn off all the lights, maybe light a candle, lay down by yourself and just let the song wash over you is a changing you kind of song. The song Colors Changed by Tank and the Bangas has been on repeat. And then I just did some writing about Mariah Carey's album, The Emancipation of Mimi. So I was like, listening to that album and particularly the song Joyride and just being like, this is such a delightful, like love offering. So those are some of my my songs right now. You know, you talk about deep mental relationships. It's in everything that you've written. And I'm curious of anyone that you can think of historically, do you have a historical mentor that if you could sit with anyone, who would that Mm. someone be? Today, I would say Tony Cade Bambara. I feel like she, I'm really interested in how she gave herself permission to write things that would not be easy to access. And yeah, I would love to sit with her and ask. Perfect. You mentioned this earlier, but you know, you traveled a lot. You've been a lot of places. I notice it comes up mm-hmm. in your books. You'll reference um, this place. I'm writing this here. I'm reflecting on that. Do you have a favorite type of place to create? Oh, yes. I am happiest creating on a beach in, where it's sunny And like my favorite writing experiences have been ones where I like wrote for a few hours and then hopped on a bike and went to the beach and got to lay and reflect and rest for a few hours and then came back to it. So something where, yeah, waves in the ocean where I can like float. That's my favorite. And the last off the dome Mm -hmm. is of all of these tools that we have available to us, electronic and otherwise, Mm -hmm. do you have a essential, necessary, needed, whatever language you want to use tool that is your must have, must go to thing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. My vibrators. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like (laughs) I just, you know, it's funny because I've been away from home for 10 months. I'm about to head back, but I, so I've been in all these different countries, places, blah, 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 blah. And like, I don't even need Wi-Fi. I don't even need any other entertainment or anything else, but I do need the, you know, just that kind of direct relationship with pleasure, like pleasure that I can like demand and cultivate and have to myself. Yeah. Perfect. No arguments from me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that brings us to the drop and the drop is just a recommendation can be anything for our listeners. I have actually Mm. a couple this episode. I can go first. You can go first. Go ahead. All right. Actually, these are very much in line with our conversation. Both of these people were featured kind of prominently. Obviously, the great Octavia Butler, I would recommend the letter that she wrote to herself. Famously, I repeat this all the time. So be it. See to it. Um, We'll have the link in the show. I think everyone should read this, print it out, do whatever they want to with it. But it's important. And then our other great person mentioned earlier, Ursula K. Le Guin, with her speech at the National Book Awards. I believe that was 2014. I reference it a lot when I talk. So people who are used to me probably have heard both of these references, but they are timeless. So those are my drops. (laughs) 
Oh, I like that. I would say mine right now, I'm pushing for people to read more horror. So to check out Tanana Do if you haven't, and to read all of her writing. But she has this African Immortals series that is just like really beautiful and really powerful and great reading. And then Audre Lord, you know, The Uses of the Eroticist Power. If you Google, you can find a copy of it where she is reading it out loud and you can listen to her read it herself, which Amazing. is just delicious. Awesome. Those are great drops. And, you know, I kept you a little longer, but I hope it was worth it. This was everything I could have asked for and more. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the deep dive with me. Thank you. I really appreciate you. This was a great conversation. Oh, thank you so uh, much. Let us know when it's up in the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Bye. Bye. It's been a pleasure having Adrian Marie Brown join me on the deep dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.